Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, January 25th. Here's a stat you may not have heard yet, newly released, that should probably be getting a lot more attention than it is. There were 2,668 fatal drug overdoses in New York City in 2021. That's the last year data has now been released for 2,668 fatal drug overdoses in the city in one year. We make such a big thing out of trying to stop 400 murders, which isn't to say we shouldn't do that, but 2,668 fatal drug overdoses in one year in 2021, 85% involving opioids and many more than before, specifically involving Fentanyl, the new provisional data from New York City's health department, and they still say provisional, even though it's for uh, 2021, reveal that fentanyl was detected in 80% of overdose deaths in the five boroughs. And these local trends mirror national trends. For the period ending October 2021, according to stats from the Centers for Disease Control, so national stats, annual overdose deaths reached a record high and nearly doubled over the two years prior, claiming the lives of more than 107,000 people nationally. Two-thirds of those deaths involve fentanyl and other synthetic opioids. So what we'll do now is try to get beyond tabloid coverage that often feels dehumanizing and try to get into what makes fentanyl so deadly and resistant to efforts to stem its abuse and ask what policies are the best to try to do so. Our guests are Sam Quinones, independent journalist and author of Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, now in paperback, uh, also The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth, both books by Sam Quinones. And Courtney McKnight is also with us, clinical assistant professor of epidemiology at NYU's School of Global Public Health. So Sam and Professor McKnight, welcome both of you to WNYC. Thank Thank you very much. Professor McKnight, can I ask you first, for the many sort of uninitiated out there, what is fentanyl? So fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that's about 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. Um, We started to see it in the illicit drug supply, particularly the heroin supply in New York City, right around late 2014, early 2015, and it has just increased um, since that time. Um, And just a little bit of background as to potentially why we're seeing these rates of overdose continue to increase is that most people who are using heroin are not seeking fentanyl, um, but fentanyl is being mixed into the heroin supply in particular, but there is some evidence that's being mixed into other drugs, but really um, heroin is the primary drug. Um, and so uh, people, so fentanyl is being mixed into heroin and people are using it without their knowledge. That has changed somewhat over time, um, but 
our data indicate that there are definitely still people who are injecting drugs here in New York City that are unaware that fentanyl might be in the drugs they're using. If that's the case, is it being mixed in because it's cheaper as an additive than pure heroin? Yes, exactly. And Sam, what makes it so potent? And how much more potent is it? How would you begin to put it in words or numerically, even than OxyContin or what they call black tar heroin? Well, I mean, it's significantly more more potent than them, as the professor said. It was designed to be a fast-acting anesthetic. In fact, it's a fantastic drug uh, when used surgically. Uh, I've had it myself. Uh, it's been a workhorse drug in in the surgical setting since the 19, since 1960 when it was uh, invented by Paul Janssen, uh, Belgian um, uh, chemist uh, who invented many many other drugs, but that was uh, a major one. Uh, for him and it's it's really a transformed surgery uh it's when it gets into the hands of the underworld um and uh as it is now fully uh that it becomes a catastrophic uh uh a thing and and then also uh, an additive and i think there's a there that's it's being added i think it's being added to heroin it's also being added to cocaine i think you see this all across the country now it's being added to methamphetamine. There are cases now of it being added to marijuana as well in some areas. Hmm. And it's more dangerous than pure heroin or pure cocaine? Oh, my goodness, yes. It's, way, it's, it's extraordinarily dangerous when not used in the surgical setting, right? So uh, the anesthesiologists in, in the operating room have the ability to, to control it, and they do so very well, and they have for, for decades. They, they use it millions of times a year. Uh, in this country. Um, it's just that when it's being used by people who have no clue or or, or entirely motivated by 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 profit, um, that it becomes a catastrophe that it has become for this country. Um, and it now, of course, now covers the country. Uh, it's it's pretty much everywhere uh, in the United States coming up from Mexico, primarily. We have a tweet that says, thank you. For fentanyl awareness, I'm frightened for my young friends who experiment with party drugs, coke, ecstasy, G, that are white powdery and fentanyl getting mixed in. Um, Professor McKnight, how did we get here to this eye-popping stat of 2,668 drug overdose deaths in New York City in one year in 2021? How quickly did we get here from a much lower number and why? So we've seen overdose rates in New York City increase really since 2010. Um, but when fentanyl really came on the scene in late 2014, early 2015, um, the increase was much more dramatic. We did have a stabilization of overdose rates, still um, way too high, but we had a stabilization between 2017 and 2019. And since then, we've seen a significant spike. Um, so between 2019 and 2021, our overdose mortality rate has increased by 80%. Um, and we know that a lot of this has to do with the pandemic and pandemic-associated isolation. You know, in the research that we conduct with people who inject drugs here in New York City, what we're hearing is that people are using their drugs alone more frequently, um, and that's in part that's due to a multitude of reasons. But the pandemic restrictions, lockdowns that happen, um, and just you know, guide, public health guidance to really not be close with other people, 
masked mask really affected how people were using their drugs, less in groups, less with partners, which is some of the harm reduction messaging to help people sort of prevent a fatal overdose. For you as an epidemiology professor then, um, does it cast a different light than you might have thought you were looking in at the beginning of the pandemic for the public health risks as well as benefits of lockdown and masking? Well, I, I mean, I think we're all sort of thinking about this in a multi, you know, across all populations, right? You know, young people and their mental health outcomes as a, as a result of the isolation due to the pandemic. But I think, you know, from the perspective of our participants, a lot of them have several underlying health conditions, which really concern them about getting close to other people, getting COVID, because they could potentially have a much more severe outcome if they did. Um, so I think, you know, I hear your point uh, about, you know, was the isolation and were the lockdowns the best, uh, the best approach? I think we did the best that we could with the information that we had at the time. Um, and, you know, I think from our perspective and the folks that we see in our studies, you know, they are very concerned about COVID and they are using lots of precautions to prevent infection. Sam, can you put those shocking numbers from New York in terms of 2021 overdose deaths into national perspective? based on your reporting, is this similar to or different from what's going on around the country? Oh, no, this is absolutely what's going on all across the country. And that's the remarkable thing. The drug trafficking world in Mexico achieved. The sad thing about one of the tragedies of COVID is that it happened. It came on just as the Mexican trafficking world had achieved uh, an unprecedented event. And that was to cover the country with not one synthetic drug, but two, really methamphetamine as well, which is less apparent in, in New York City, I know, but is clearly all over the country. And so when people were locked down they and then relapsed, um, the drugs that most frequently greeted them when they were relapsing were these extraordinarily damaging drugs, fentanyl and methamphetamine damaging for different reasons. But the, but the issue is always the same. They're synthetic drugs made with chemicals, no plants, involved in their making. And so what you have is down in Mexico, access to um, almost unlimited access to precursor chemicals through certain uh, shipping ports coming from China and, and India and every other places. And, and these ingredients allow the trafficking world, which is very robust and, 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 and throbbing kind of ecosystem of dope, to make quantities of these drugs that simply just it just boggle the mind just staggering quantities of drugs and so you find fentanyl in maine you find uh, methamphetamine pretty much everywhere now fentanyl is being laced into uh, cocaine pretty much all across the country uh, uh baltimore which was a long time heroin town i don't really think has much heroin anymore it's just mm -hmm. all been fentanylized in a, in a sense everybody's been kind of transitioned from heroin uh, 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 to fentanyl. So this is something that's going on all across the country. And the issue is, of course, the enormous unrelenting uh, supplies coming out of Mexico in the last several years. Is this a uniquely United States problem? And to the extent that it's so intense and widespread nationwide, I would say yes. However, I would say that there probably are not too many drug traffickers or drug dealers who have any interest in selling or making heroin 
a- anymore. So I would I would imagine that the, you see you see fentanyl outbreaks. You've seen them in Sweden, Estonia, different places like that. And I would say that eventually all heroin, you know, producers are going to transition to fentanyl because it's just so so much easier. And and of course, synthetic drugs have enormous benefits over plant-based drugs. You don't need land or sunlight or rainfall or farmers. You can do it all in a lab away from, you know, the the prying eyes of helicopters. Uh, it, it reduces the risk uh, dramatically. It's much, fentanyl is remarkably easy to smuggle because it is so dramatically more potent than anything we've ever seen. And, and so you get an enormous risk of reduction and enormous increase in 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 profit. So my feeling is that there really is no benefit to to drug traffickers anymore to actually be making her- heroin. It, the, the the money's in fentanyl, and so this is really something. This the phenomenon I've described nationwide is really something that does not benefit users. It's not what users demanded. It's a very very deadly thing, but it does benefit traffickers. It's all about the what what benefits traffickers here with synthetic drugs. And I think Agnes in Manhattan has a question about exactly that, what the users want and what the traffickers are distributing. Agnes, you're on WNYC. Hi. Hi. uh, Thank you for taking my call. I don't get the point uh, of the narcos. They want to make money. They want to create more and more addicts. But they are distributing a drug that is killing their clientele. So I I just don't, don't get it. Sam? It, it, it makes a lot of, of sense and in, in, uh, f- viewed from one perspective, though, because fentanyl has a way of creating um, more clientele very quickly. And you're seeing that. I think the professor mentioned it early on where you're seeing it mixed into fentanyl, mixed into I mean, uh, mixed into heroin, mixed mm-hmm. into cocaine. And when it does that, it creates a new customer, a, cu- a customer who buys cocaine, buys maybe twice, let's say twice a week, can take a two-week vacation from cocaine, right? But once that person is transitioned to fentanyl, that person is buying every single day, and fentanyl requires them to use far more times in a day than it does than does heroin. So you're using fentanyl four, five, six times, seven times a day, when before you were using maybe, if you were using heroin at all, you were using it once or twice or three times at the most. The other truth is this, and this was, goes back to the her- long ago in, in the heroin days, and that is that when someone dies in, a, in the world of people who are addicted, that is not a warning. That is an advertisement that that mm-hmm. dope's pretty good. Go find that dope. It knocks so and so on his butt, but I'm not going to be hurt. I mean, that guy died because he's a fool. I'm not going to be hurt. You know, it's like this kind of self delusion. The problem is, of course, with fentanyl. The truth is also, though, that nobody lasts on the street. Everybody, there is no such thing as a long-term fentanyl user. Uh, but but this is short-term gain we're thinking about here. This is what tra- dealers what, what, think about. What do about you mean only. there's no such thing as a long-term fentanyl user? You mean they either die, they all die. or kick the habit? No. They, well, if they, don't, if they don't get treatment, if they don't get off the street and get away from the dope, they all die. And, and this is happening all across the country. It's a common phrase that you hear. Talk to drug counselors, and they'll tell you this, this over and over. Talk to addicts, and they know it's true, too, that nobody lasts a long time. No, f- heroin, I have, I've met heroin, interviewed heroin uh, addicts who have been using 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, they don't have a very nice life at any, in any way, but 
but they're not they're not dead. So it's the part of what the caller is asking about is absolutely uh, rational question. Like, why would you sell something that kills people? Well, because it helps you for the sh very, very short right. term. Talking about people who are thinking about short term consequences only. And it has that effect when everybody's addicted to fentanyl, as many people now are, to say, oh, this guy's got good stuff. It killed somebody. Let's go get that stuff. Wow. Okay, I just want to make a point about um, uh, Sam saying that they all die. I mean, I, I don't think that's borne out in the data yet. I don't think we have enough years of data to determine that. And I also think, you know, in New York City, we're seeing 82% um, of the people in our study tested positive for fentanyl, meaning that they've used it in the previous two days. So most people are actually being exposed to fentanyl regularly, multiple times a day not necessarily always overdosing and certainly not dying. And that could be due to a multitude of reasons in that, um, you know, some people might be overdosing and then naloxone is administered. Um, it could be that they're using less, which we hear all the time because people are very concerned about overdosing. So they're changing their behavior around their drug injection practices, trying to use less, trying to test their doses. So I take issue with the notion that everybody's going to die. I and I, I but I want to just caution that the drug supply in New York City is incredibly unstable. The drug supply across the country is incredibly unstable. But um I'm not sure that the data bear out that everyone's going to die. What does unstable mean? It's unreliable as to whether you can get it or something else? It's just unpredictable. So to know so for instance, um to know whether or not there's going to be fentanyl in every bag. We did have uh, about 20% of people in our study were just using heroin They're, you know, in the last two days. So when we look at the urine, their urine tox results, we see that um, they reported using heroin use, which 98% of our folks do. Um, and then there's a subset of people that were actually just using heroin, which was sort of new to us. We assumed that everyone was interact was being exposed to fentanyl. Um, but we are seeing, you know, it's a small subset and that subset is likely to be reduced. But um, that's what I mean about mm -hmm. this sort of Who did you study, Professor McKnight? Who did you, stu um, a, who did you study? It's an ongoing study that the study has been going on in one form or another for 30 over 30 years here in New York City with people who use drugs. But our current uh, phase of the study is with people who inject drugs. Stephanie in Forest Hills, you're on WNYC. Hi, Stephanie. You know, I was just listening to the conversation about um, that, you know, most most people who are using fentanyl um die and I, I, I very much agree with the with the last speaker. I, I'm a social worker and I, I work on an outpatient treatment team. I work with folks who are cycling between um the shelter, the street, the prison system and the mental health system. And I have many, many folks who are using fentanyl and are very much using and continuing to use and are very, very savvy with their use. They know that fentanyl is in their drugs and they absolutely do change their behavior. Um it's incredibly concerning, and I've seen a huge change in, in people's symptoms and presentation from their use, and I, I really credit it with like this increase in fentanyl and with other drugs, with Trank that we're starting to see now. Um, but the, the main reason I wanted to call in um, was just around the question of sort of policy and what can be done differently here in New York. Um, one concerning thing that I that we see the the 
colleagues, my colleagues and I see is that when we have folks who are using um, fentanyl or using other opiates, um, they're often, um, you know, com committing crimes in order to pay for that drug use. You know, we have a supervised release um, sort of program. It's like a something that I think the city has moved more towards, which I think is is really wonderful in some sense, you know, going to Rikers or going to jail is really <laughs> not the best treatment um, in a polite way uh, to, to help yep. people manage their substance use, um, especially because usually so much trauma and often mental health systems are behind the motivation for that use. Um, but what we're seeing with supervised release is that it's not really a service. Instead, it's a place where people check in. Um, you know, so for example, I, I work with somebody who is really, really battling a very heavy substance use addiction, and he's on supervised release, and he has been living at a, a shelter, at a safe haven, and we take him to a supervised release program, and they just check him in. They make sure, like, he's the right person, it's his name, it's his date of birth, and then he leaves. And as much as we want to respect his autonomy, I think what would be more useful for him would be to consider some sort of mandated substance use treatment, um, which he's responded well to in the past, but it sort of seems the way the policy works now is that the only way that he would be mandated to treatment would be if he became, if he was arrested and then mandated to treatment. And so he's just sort of being left in the cycle now where he shows up to these supervised release programs and they check his name off and then he gets rearrested. And I think we're really at a loss. And we were just having a discussion the other day on my team about how we're so worried that he'll die and that, it's almost as if Rikers is the better option right now, which can you imagine a room of social workers uh, considering that? Like, that, I think that yeah. just reflects wow. how dire how dire the situation is and how much of a lack of sort of option there is for providing support and service. Stephanie, let me ask you a follow-up question. Um, in your experience as, as a social worker, um, you said, if I heard you right, that some of your clients are using sav uh, using fentanyl in a savvy way they're becoming savvy users mm -hmm. i guess to preserve mm -hmm. their lives while they're addicted um in that context what do you think of the supervised injection sites that the city is pioneering yeah. Um, we're very pro the safe injection sites. Um, my office is actually a few blocks away from the one in Harlem, and we refer clients to there all the time and walk them over. I mean, look, people are using people are using regardless of these if, of if these safe injection sites are around, and it is safer, for lack of a better word, to use in a place where um, there's someone around, where there's medical professionals around, where there's Narcan around. Um, you know, people are going to use regardless. And so I think, you know, for us, the way we think about people's safety and, and harm reduction is that um, it's going to support, you know, safer use, but also potentially yet less use. I think that the critique of this will um, encourage people to use more is, is misguided. Um, you know, I have had clients talk about how well, if I use, maybe I should, you know, go to the safe injection site and that way there'll be people around and the person over time may be encouraged to use less. You know, there's yeah. maybe some psychological And don't they also at those sites refer people to rehab? Yes. Yeah, yeah, they can refer yeah. people to detox, to rehab. I mean, it's such a it's such an amazing resource. And I think that a lot of the early data, at least at the site in Harlem, has been that a lot of people's lives are being saved. Stephanie, thank you so much for your call. And Professor McKnight, how else do you solve a problem like fentanyl from a policy or epidemiological standpoint? I think, you know, one of the primary things is we know that people who need treatment or want treatment are not getting it. So um, for people with... Uh, 
opioid use disorder, only 11% of people with opioid use disorder are actually getting treatment. And so we need to expand our access to treatment. I think we need to scale up um, uh, overdose prevention centers. You know, they saved uh, the centers only been open a little over a year and they intervened in 670 overdoses. Um, so, and I, you know, the data, there's over a hundred sites open in the world and there's not been a single fatal overdose across any of those sites uh, since they've been open. Um, so I think there, the data are really, you know, very clear around OPCs um, or overdose prevention sites. <laughs> you know, there, Canada is doing um, safer supply programs, uh, meaning that they are providing prescribed hydromorphone and fentanyl. They've been in a fentanyl overdose crisis longer than we have here in the United States. So they are basically providing a regulated alternative to an unregulated illicit supply um, in order to stabilize the lives of people for whom other treatment approaches have not worked. Um, and then, you know, we need to also scale up our distribution of naloxone, which we know is very effective in reducing overdose deaths. And I think very importantly, which, you know, there is discussion of it, but I think we can always um, have more conversations about this is that yeah. the impact of stigma is very significant in mm -hmm. terms of um, the effect on overdose, people using alone, people um, being concerned about getting into treatment, because then that means that people will know that they're actually using. As we run out of time, Sam Quinones, on controlling the fentanyl, getting in better, you know, many on the right have pointed to fentanyl as a reason that Democrats need to pay closer attention to the border and to secure the border. Um, is there a way to keep the fentanyl out while letting asylum seekers in? You want me to answer that in 30 yes, seconds? Yes, sir. Yes, I do. <laughs> do your best. Uh, well, there, there most likely is, uh, but, but it would need a, a dramatic new relationship between Mexico and the United States. I lived in Mexico for 10 years. I do, do believe, and I wrote two books about the country. I do believe that that relationship is, is possible and possible to sustain across administrations and regardless of what happens in the rest of the world. Very, very important to do. It has not happened yet. We have, we do need that, but this has graduated from a drug problem to a national poisoning and i think it really uh requires now the the attention full attention of both uh governments both to control the fentanyl coming north along with the methamphetamine again as i said but also the guns that are bought here that are smuggled south and and arm those very cartels and give them the impunity to make the quantities of fentanyl and meth that are coming into these country this country right now it requires though a, a a very different way of viewing the 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 relationship between the two countries and so far no president in my lifetime either in mexico or the united states has has really had the staying power and the attention span to to actually achieve it it is possible it just requires a new way of looking and thinking about the other country sam quinones independent journalist and the author of the books dreamland the true tale of america's opiate epidemic and The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. That one is just out in paperback. And Courtney McKnight, Clinical Assistant Professor of Epidemiology at NYU School of Global Public Health. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you, Brian. 
Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.